Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Patrick Brown is out of the Conservative Party's leadership race. Ian Brody says the party learned of, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing by Brown's campaign. Patrick Brown said this disqualification or attempt to disqualify reveals what he calls political corruption. Our campaign hasn't done anything wrong. If there was anything that was not consistent with the Canadian Elections Act, we would immediately address it. But you can't respond to an anonymous allegation. Well, now the whistleblower has released a public statement. Her name is Debbie Jo Duane. So what the hell just happened? I don't know, maybe the same old, same old. Maybe a dirty politician got caught breaking the rules. Or maybe a politician got stabbed in the back by his rivals. Or maybe both at the same time, you know, in which case, what else is new? Maybe what just happened with Patrick Brown and the leadership race for the federal conservatives is nothing shocking. Or maybe that jaded shrug actually gives cover to a much more serious situation. And, and follow me on this for a minute. Canadians do not vote governments in, they vote governments out. That is a cliche because it's true. For example, back in 2018, it is very likely that Ontarians were so eager to vote the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne out that whoever happened to be leading the Conservatives at that time was just going to be Premier. In which case, the decision about who would govern Ontario was not made by voters, but by the Ontario PC party when they chose Doug Ford 
following Patrick Brown's first spectacular flameout. Patrick Brown is now out as the leader of the province's progressive conservative party, the official opposition, and out over allegations of sexual misconduct by two women. A couple hours ago, I learned about troubling allegations about my conduct and character, and I'm here tonight to address them. And we still don't know who was behind that. Here's another example. Uh, Now. Canada is headed into a recession. Trudeau's liberals are looking tired and tarnished. Historically, these are exactly the circumstances under which Canadians toss whoever happens to be in power out and elect in whoever happens to be leading that other party. In which case, the answer to my question, what the hell just happened, is that what just happened is the Conservative Party of Canada just elected Pierre Polyev our next prime minister. That's a hypothesis. That is a possibility. But what do I know about conservatives? Viewed from a distance, internal conservative party politics looks like a shady basket of snakes, uh, stabby snakes, snakes that can somehow stab each other. This week on this show, in the wake of Patrick Brown's most recent flameout, we're going to cautiously lift the lid on that basket and and shine a light on the writhing pile of snakes and, and try to understand these snakes. Where do they get all the knives? How does a snake even hold a knife? That kind of thing. And to do that, I need to talk to somebody who actually knows real live conservatives and might even be one. Journalist Jen Gerson, founder of The Line, a Substack and podcast that is well worth your time, joins me from Calgary in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Gareth Husk, Robert Keel, Salvo Candela, Fatima Lam, David Klein, Linda Barclay, Dorothy Robertson, and Haley. I'm Haley, an electronic artist and gardening enthusiast living in Toronto. I support Canada Land because some of the takes that make it into major newspapers make me want to claw my eyes out. Canada Land is one of the few places where I can find thoughtful, fact-based conversations and reporting that feel deeply human, even when Jesse is being a bit of a chode. Hi, Jen. Hey, Jesse. Jen, did the Conservative Party of Canada just privately decide that Pierre Polyev is our next prime minister? Man. I mean, look, we're still in a democratic system, and I think that actual election campaigns matter. But I think that there are very good odds that whomever the conservatives pick here is well positioned to take over as the prime minister. I agree with you on that. The thing I would say is like, there's a reason why Pierre is probably going to win here and nobody else seems to have come even remotely close. And that's not that's not uh, failing to recognize that there's a lot of batshit stuff going on right now. Conservatives exist. They're actually real. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, we they do, yes. They live, they laugh, they love. When you prick them, they bleed. When you tickle them, they laugh. They represent a plurality of people in this country and a country that you are still living in. Yes, that is happening. Maybe you can help me because, Jen, I am skeptical and afraid, but I am also ignorant. I don't know how things work. I don't live in this culture, the conservative world in Canada. And maybe before we talk about what just happened with Patrick Brown, maybe the best use of my time with you today is to get like a guided tour 
through dirty trick land? Like, can you describe the world of dodgy shit? Like, give me a, like a, paint me a, a landscape. How would you even begin it? This would be like shoehorning in your favorite candidate into a riding and kicking out someone who had actually tried to win the nomination and legitimately. This would be spreading rumors about your opponent. It would be leaking stuff to the press about someone within your own party because you're trying to hurt a particular faction of that party. You know, some of the dirtiest stuff to come out about the UCP in Alberta that was published by far left press progress was actually leaked by conservative party operatives, right? (laughs) Because they were trying to get their own. So there's all kinds of stuff like that that goes on. I mean, it's so gross that Michelle Rempel said, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to be a part of this in Alberta. It's too gross. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was straight up like, no, no o'clock. You guys are fucked. And also, like, they're just there's just so many internal ideological factions within these parties, right? I mean, the red Tories are different from the libertarian Tories are different from the social conservatives. I would say also, like, at this particular moment in history, there's quite a lot of acute sort of factionalization happening within the Conservative Party as you have a Conservative Party that I'm not even sure, you know, under O'Toole, for example, was was confident that it was going to stay together as a single unified party. So this particular moment of history, you have like the trends of Trump, you have sort of an emergent populism faction starting to emerge. You have a party that really lost its identity once Stephen Harper left. Mm -hmm. And then you have various sort of both regional and ideological factions at play. You have like the West versus the rest. This is not exclusive to conservative politics by any stretch, but it does seem to be like in this particular moment, there's, there's a bit of an acute flavor to it. Yeah, I would agree with that. As an outsider reading about this, I always read about Patrick Brown claims he has sold X number, 150,000 memberships, and and Pierre Polyev says that he has sold thousands of memberships from coast to coast. And I'm always like, why is there this suggestion that we should be skeptical of these numbers? Uh, because the parties have to verify them. Okay, firstly, you have to make sure that the person buying the membership is connected to the credit card. You have to make sure that you know you didn't have any wonks or glitches going through the membership portals. Some people will, I think, still buy membership by paper. So like, there's a whole process of verification that has to happen. The reason why people were a little bit skeptical of this is because the numbers didn't really seem to add up. The actual number of conservative members seemed to more than quadruple or triple. And then when you added everybody's claimed memberships, it didn't quite add up to the total number of memberships that the conservatives had. So was that a situation where you had pre-existing members re-signing up for a particular candidate without realizing their membership? You know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of just totally legitimate, complicated glitches. Are there illegitimate reasons why those numbers might be wrong? Yeah, potentially you could have uh, in leadership candidates claiming that they had signed up this huge or enormous number of members in order to intimidate other members within the uh, leadership race. And the reason why you would do that is that if you're Pierre Polyev and you're coming out and saying, I have 300,000 members signed up under my portal, you know, your clear message to the rest of the field and also to the conservative leadership electorate, the people who are actually doing the voting, is I'm going to win. You know, so like, like, don't bother backing another horse because I'm so far ahead of any other candidate that nobody else stands a hope. So you might as well back the winner. So there's also an element of PR for all of this as well. Is there a third reason to be suspicious? Is there any history of fake memberships being sold or any kind of fraud with memberships? 
I mean, you can go back from provincial politics to federal politics and find allegations, for example, of mass buying of memberships and people sort of mass buying, like they'll spend a hundred whatever thousand dollars on mass bought memberships and then they'll assign those memberships out to individual family groups. That will also sometimes happen, particularly within sort of close-knit communities, close-knit religious communities or close-knit ethnic communities where they can just be like, look, here's your membership, vote on the day kind of thing. So those groups are sometimes easier to organize. Certainly that has been issues in other types of parties and places. I mean, Alberta, for example, there was a leadership race here in Alberta for the Kenny leadership where there were all kinds of allegations of that kind of stuff going on. When people heard that Patrick Brown was getting thrown out of the party for ethics violations, I think some people assumed that it was going to be to do with the memberships. It turned out to be not to be the case. And I think if you go back and you look at Patrick Brown's history, there's a lot of allegations of him engaging in dirty tricks and all that kind of thing. And I'm I'm not saying whether or not that's true or not. I'm saying there are allegations thereof. But Patrick Brown's real, on the record, reported on ethical violations were were almost always about money. Mm -hmm. Right? Can we talk about that? Sure. So, for example, uh, I'll pull up a story here from 2018. I believe the Ontario Integrity Commissioner issued a report that found that Patrick Brown was in violation of, I think, four uh, major um, ethical violations. Essentially, the big one was that he had taken a $375,000 loan from a guy named Jazz Johol, who's who was a friend of his, but who was also a Tory candidate in Brampton. And he failed to disclose that essentially he had taken a very significant loan from a candidate, which raises all kinds of questions about, okay, well, wait a minute, did, did you essentially buy the nomination was the question. That's why you have to disclose these things, right? He also failed to disclose significant rental income as well. So the integrity commissioner was like, yeah, you can't, it's very obvious that you have to disclose these situations. And the integrity commissioner was pretty blunt about saying, you know, that there clearly was an attempt to sort of hide the fact that he had taken this loan. So that's a pretty significant integrity violation. And then, of course, in the wake of the disqualification from the CPC, you actually had a a very underreported, actually, release from five Brampton councillors who are calling on a major forensic investigation from Brown's time as mayor of Brampton. Because apparently, they allege, they allege, they allege, they allege, that essentially staff that Brown had hired at City Hall gave uh, $629,000 in contracts to a firm employed by one of Brown's closest political allies and close friends. And then everybody basically bailed out with them not being able to account for this money. There's also been allegations that Brown was running his leadership campaigns using City Hall staff, so using taxpayer staff to run his CPC leadership campaign. So like, I don't know whether or not these allegations are true or not. They have been publicly made by Brampton City Councilors, But if they are true, they would show a pretty clear pattern of behavior that would be in line with the allegations made against Brown that led to his disqualification from the CPC race, is what I would say. How can I say that any more carefully without getting sued for libel? (laughs) You're saying, though, what everybody is saying, which is like this guy has just been like one thing after the next. And of course, the sexual impropriety allegations that got him booted out of like being the next premier of Ontario. That happened as well. But- I think we should probably go into the actual allegations that led to his disqualification. So this is a case where you had a fairly senior organizing volunteer named Deborah Joden. I I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. But essentially, she's been working for various conservative campaigns uh, for like 22 years. She gets involved in the Patrick Brown campaign. Essentially, according to her, a statement released via her lawyer, she says she agreed to take some kind of job 
where effectively she was being paid by a corporate entity. She thought that that was okay. As she's going about her work getting paid to work on this Patrick Brown campaign, she's she's noticing stuff like her campaign expenses and her campaign receipts are being reimbursed not by the Patrick Brown campaign official, but rather through, through this corporate entity. And that's when she starts to go, wait a minute, that's not normal, that's not right, which it isn't, it very clearly isn't. And that's when she decides apparently to go whistleblower. And if you do a quick look of, of Deborah Joden, I think you would find that she's pretty hard to paint as some kind of anti-Patrick Brown plant. She's one of these people who, according to her own social media campaign, went full truther during the sexual misconduct allegations. She was all pro-Patrick Brown. She's like, all of these bitches are lying. She was like hardcore. And then she gets involved in the Patrick Brown campaign, takes this job, realizes that there's something off, goes whistleblower herself. And of course, now she's going to be demonized by the exact same people. Yeah. And I think it should be said here, like, this has gotten a lot clearer from when it first broke. When it first broke, we had the Conservative Party not really telling us what evidence they had or who the whistleblower was or what the actual impropriety was. Just he's being unethical and we kicked him out. And that allowed him to say that he's been treated unfairly, that this is all coming from Pierre Polyev and Polyev supporters. And that, like, hey, I've got thousands of volunteers. I don't know if one of them is like secretly paid by some other company. I knew nothing about this and I have I don't even know who you're talking about. And it looks like that at least allegedly is completely false because what Debbie Jodoin is saying is no. Patrick Brown absolutely knew that I was being paid by somebody else. I told him and he told me it was okay. Also, if she was submitting expenses to the Patrick Brown campaign and then this corporate entity was paying off those expenses, there's no way that the CFO could have missed that. Which means if there was something of that nature going on, it's not just Patrick Brown who's implicated in it. There's a clear issue within his campaign as a whole. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now it is mental health week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Okay, let me flip it. Maybe there is another perspective on this. God help me. What might Patrick Brown say? What is he saying? And what would he actually say if he, if he could speak perfectly candidly? Let me try this out for size, okay? I'll be Patrick Brown. I am absolutely different than the conservative establishment, whether it's in Ontario politics or federal. I am a different kind of conservative. I am trying to move conservative politics to the center or, you know, even beyond when it comes to everything from multiculturalism to a stance on Israel to uh, social conservative values, uh, social policies. We have conservative movement in Canada that is lost. It can't win. It fails again and again because it's not involving new Canadians and it's not involving diverse Canadians. And it is like got these weird hangover ties to the Christian right. And the Harper way of putting things together is failed and failed again. But I am a huge threat to the establishment and they are out to get me. And they are delegitimizing my thousands of supporters and disenfranchising them. And I don't really, this is the part where maybe he's had a drink or two and he's being candid. I haven't really done anything different than anybody else. What is this, an under $10,000 transgression? Like, if it was somebody they liked, they would have let me just pay it back. But they're out to get me, and the guy who runs this committee is a former Harper guy, and Polyev is a former Harper guy, and they want things to be the way that it was under Harper, and that means Trumpism, and that means freedom convoy, and that means losing. Okay, so you've, 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 you've massively lost the plot in the last, like, three seconds there. Tell me why. Patrick Brown has a couple of major political assets. Uh, his connections with non-traditional communities, both ethnic and sort of non-religious communities, is absolutely one. I don't think that anyone would deny that he has some very intense skills as an organizer. To some extent, his skills as an organizer rooted in his ability to find and develop real relationships with vote brokers, right? Like community vote brokers of various different communities and types. And I don't undermine that. That's that's a skill. Can I just ask you how he does that? Like, what is his connection to, to the Punjabi? Like, how does he make this happen? I don't know. I don't know enough about his personal connection to any particular community. But essentially, it is fairly well known that very often certain diaspora communities will vote in blocks. So you go to a local community broker and you develop sort of a relationship rapport or a tit for tat kind of agreement. And that broker will move their block for you. This is definitely a factor within um, major general elections, but this also becomes a major factor when you're talking about uh, leadership campaigns, where a block of two, three, four thousand, five thousand people could be like a third of your vote. So if you develop a relationship with one of these community sort of vote block dealers, you know, you only need a relationship with five or six of them. I mean, they used to call Jason Kenney the minister of Curry in a hurry for a reason, because effectively he was doing the same kind of thing. I'm just specifically curious about this one because, like, you know, you see these videos of, like, Jagmeet Singh going into Brampton and he's accosted by young Punjabi guys who are like, get the fuck out of here. You're a traitor. Hey, Jagmeet, don't sell out, bro. Don't sell out. Sell out, thing, bro. You sold out a dome, bro. And this is like the Patrick Brown faithful. And then it gets reported because Jagmeet Singh says, oh, I've been targeted by threats and hate crimes. It's like, well, something else is going on there. 
Raheem Muhammad did a great piece for us of the line and talked about diaspora politics and how increasingly it's becoming a factor in Canadian politics. And it's something we really need to understand better and pay more attention to. Diaspora politics um, is a is absolutely an extension of politics that already existed here. It's just uh, it's it's as more and more people come to live in Canada from other parts of the world and bring some of their tribal or ethnic affiliations with them. Diaspora politics are are more of a, a matter that's just at play in terms of who gets to be leader and what kinds of people are really organizationally controlling certain writings. So Patrick Brown's appeal is, yes, absolutely, he does seem to have developed some really impressive ties with uh, non-traditional communities for the conservative base. They absolutely need to go into that. He is seen as politically moderate. He does seem to not particularly uh, kowtow to a social conservative base. Does that make him a threat within the Conservative Party? I think initially it made him very promising within the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party wants to bring in non-white members of the party. They recognize that that's a lot of where they have for many years recognized that that's where the future of conservatism is. It's not in, you know, rural Alberta white people. It's going to be in Brampton people of color. Well, they want the votes, but do they want to move policy-wise? Do they want to move social conservative policies? Don't assume that people of color are not socially conservative. And in fact, one of the things that Jason Kenney discovered way back in the day was that a lot of communities of color are actually more socially conservative than white communities. That's an excellent point. But Jen, let's not deny the fact that on a policy level, a lot of people look at like the choices that seem to be at hand, Doug Ford or Patrick Brown, and you go like, ugh. Like neither. Yeah. A lot of people could look at Pierre Polyev and, and Patrick Brown and go, ugh, I, I, like, I don't even care, neither. But if you actually look at what they want to do with huge amounts of money and with the law as legislators, there is a lot of space between what those do. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's, I wouldn't deny that. I would say, in general, the conservatives would look at someone like Patrick Brown and say, hey, man, you're shoring up a weakness that we have. Great. So he shouldn't be a threat to the party. However, where this gets really messy and and complicated is that Patrick Brown's sort of history of sexual misconduct, his ego, and also his approach to being called out for wrongdoing has effectively made him a lot of serious enemies within the party. It's not because of what he represents. It's because of the things he's explicitly done. What about his policies? Does that make him enemies within the party? I think it makes him a representative of a certain faction within the party. But like, no, the Conservative Party has always been a pretty big tent party, right? Now, where this gets more complicated, as I would say, was with the ascendance of Pierre Polyev. With the rise of Pierre Polyev, what you are seeing right now is a kind of a reinvention and reformulation of the Conservative Party as an ascendant populist party. Mm-hmm. So it's less of a big tent party than it previously was. And you are seeing examples of sort of more moderate conservatives, Ed Fast, Michelle Rempel-Garner, those sorts of people getting essentially sidelined and kicked out of the party in order to run it as the Pierre show. You do have to pay attention to what's happening with the party as a whole. And one of the things that, I don't know, set a lot of alarm bells off within the Conservative Party ranks was that the vote to disqualify Patrick Brown was 11-6. How can we look at something like that and say, oh, that was not a political decision? Well, there you go. That becomes the question. Because if this was a slam dunk case of Patrick Brown doing something dodgy, then it should have been unanimous or pretty close to. The fact that it's 11-6, and from my understanding that 11-6 divided roughly along pro and anti-Pierre lines, makes people go like, wait a minute. 
And as Patrick Brown put it, is this the coronation of Pierre Polyev? But isn't that a little self-aggrandizing of Patrick Brown? Because Of course it is. Of course it is. But maybe it's also true. Maybe it's also true. Like, just looking at this from the outside, I, I just think about different times where it seems like same, same, but different things happened. Mm-hmm. Like, Maxime Bernier was, like, far and away the front runner to lead the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. And and he trounced Andrew Scheer at first ballot. But he didn't get 50%. It took 13 ballots. 13 ballots. And then, and people forget this part, on the 13th ballot, Scheer wins by, like, less than 1% of the votes. Mm-hmm. And then we learn that more than 1% of the votes have disappeared. And for a second, for a second, Maxime Bernier is making noises like he might ask for a recount or make a big stink. But then he's, like, holding up Scheer's arm in victory. And somebody talked to Bernier and came to some accommodation. And Scheer is the leader. And the difference for the voter between Andrew Scheer and Maxime Bernier, that's, like, bigger than the difference between, like, certain political parties. So here's the interesting thing is that an extraordinary amount of work goes on behind the scenes to make sure that really bad candidates never get the chance to lead the party. These are private organizations. And as I read in the Toronto Sun of all places, the courts just don't get involved. No. Even if laws are broken, yeah. the, the courts don't get involved. Yeah. And the decisions that get made in these private organizations, these political parties, often make general elections like, like de facto processes. I don't want to overstate that. General elections still matter, and general elections are in this country are exceptionally clean in one run. No, but you can have a clean general election between two candidates where the process that brought you one of those candidates was like a hidden clusterfuck. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, this is where we get into the point where like all parties do this is as, as any recently deposed potential liberal nominee will tell you because like the leader decided that they wanted someone in that riding better, right? Like... Literally, yes, that's correct. So essentially, we operate in a system where these parties are private clubs. Mm -hmm. But what's happening right now is that you have a conservative party that is going into full-on fucking fever dream bunker mode. That is what's happening. And do I think that it's possible that a party in full-on fever dream bunker mode could like hypothetically make some shit up in order to take out the second runner in a race? Yeah, of course that could fucking happen. But my goodness, Patrick Brown is a bad, bad poster child for a victim complex, isn't he? If all of this is true, then the circumstance is like really concerning because essentially what you're describing is a Canada in which a viable option on the menu for voters between two types of conservatism, one that you would think Canada would be moving towards and the conservatives would have to move towards to be viable, a more inclusive conservatism, perhaps an environmentally more, more responsible conservatism, a conservatism that is not from the Christian right and the anti-abortion right, but is socially much more progressive, that that option is off the menu because of the failings of one individual. No, it isn't. Because firstly, if you want that kind of conservatism, and that would be great, by the way, you need to put it behind a poster child who's not as problematic and baggage-ridden as Patrick Brown. That's what I just said. Secondly, if that's what you want, you'll vote for Sheree. Sheree seems like a non-starter to me in Quebec, seems like a non-starter to me with multicultural Canada. We call him Sheree Bring Out Your Dead for a reason. He's yesterday's man. But I'm saying, like, there is a credible red Tory conservative here for people to rally around. The reason why they won't is because that's not actually what the conservative party wants right now. The conservative party, for better or worse, wants the Pierre. 
That's just what it is. So when they elect him and when they make him prime minister, you'll know who to blame. That is your Canada Land. If you like this show, please support us. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby and Cherie Sutrin. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, we make podcasts because people in our listenership support us. Uh, the whole network relies on that. Go to canadaland.com slash join or just click the link in your show notes. We got stuff for you in exchange for that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.